Welcome to Gathering Gold, a podcast for highly sensitive souls. I'm Cheryl Paul, a counselor trained in the Jungian depth psychological tradition. And I'm Victoria Russell, Cheryl's niece and co-host. This podcast explores some of the themes highlighted in my book, The Wisdom of Anxiety, and my Conscious Transitions blog. Join us as we dive into the realms of our inner worlds to ask deep questions, grow more self-trust and self-love, and embrace sensitivity, creativity, and the rhythms of the natural world. If you would like to connect with me, Victoria, and others in the Gathering Gold listener community and support the podcast to help us continue our work, please consider joining our Patreon at patreon.com slash gatheringgold. To learn more about Cheryl's course offerings, including courses to support you in breaking free from anxiety in all forms, learning to trust yourself, and becoming more comfortable with uncertainty, please visit Cheryl's website, conscious-transitions.com. You can also find us on Instagram, Cheryl is at Wisdom of Anxiety, and I am at Perennials Podcast. Thank you for listening. We are going to be exploring a very vast topic today, the topic of grieving unlived lives. It's a topic that comes up all the time in my work with clients and course members, and It is so vast, Victoria and I started to explore it in our pre-talk for this recording, that um, we still feel like we are swimming in a giant ocean. And I think that's what happens when we are in the midst of archetypal territory. Um, There's something mysterious and mercurial about this about this topic where we we touch one area and it kind of moves away like a mercury blob. And it's like we're trying to harness time or nail down time. It's related to time. It's related to, I think, the passage of time. It's related to grief. It's related to this one life that we have. So we had a very interesting conversation yesterday that spawned both of us to write more on this topic, which we sent back and forth to each other last night. And one of the things that I was thinking about, I had to jump off to go pick up Asher, was how grieving unlived lives also, we think of it as only related to the past, but and this is where this topic of time comes in, but it's also connected to the future. And I started to think about our son Everest going off to college in a few months and how making this one choice means saying no to every other choice. And I was thinking, what if he makes this choice, the, the direction where he's leaning strongly in, and something horrible happens, like this is the college where he'll be, he'll be able to take his car, 
the other college that he's been considering, he wouldn't be able to take a car. So he'll be driving a lot more. And I can hear and feel my anxious mind piping up, wanting him to make the safer choice. He should go to the college where he's not allowed to have a car because then he'll be safer, right? But I also know that there's no safer choice. And so I try to go underneath. Underneath all of it is the grief of letting him go. And this is all my mind's attempts to play some perfect game of chess to avoid catastrophe. If he makes the perfectly right choice, the safer choice, we will avoid catastrophe. Because of course the anxious mind is already projecting into some future catastrophic scenario where I'm already thinking he should have chosen the college where he wouldn't have a car. So this game of mind chess where we project into the future and review the past and think about, well, what if I had made that choice? Or what if in some imagined future scenario, I will make that choice or he should have made that choice? It's all, in a sense, an attempt to protect ourselves from pain. If I had made that other choice, I would have less pain, whatever that choice is. Or sometimes unlived lives are not by virtue of our choices. They're just circumstances. And so if I had been given those circumstances, I would have less pain or less loneliness or um, less emptiness, right? It's It's all a strategy, this aspect of it. Anyway, not all the topic of grieving unlived lives, but this one aspect of it is a strategy to avoid the messy, the big, the hard feelings, right? So, so many spokes to this topic of grieving unlived lives, and one of them is I think when we're dwelling in it or when we're ruminating in it is our mind's attempt to avoid what's hard, what's uncomfortable, what's painful about being human. Oh, so well said. I I was thinking about our Escape Hatch Fantasies episode from last year, and I love that episode. I think it's one of our best. I re-listened mm. to it a few months ago and I was like, dang, this is really good. I really <laughs> enjoy this one. But I feel like the escape hatch fantasy is almost like the sexy version of this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, grieving unlived lives is like the sad, tender, or not just sad, but just the very tender mm-hmm. spot for what you're talking about. This idea of being in contact with with how painful life can be, mm. how much uncertainty there is, and just grappling with mortality at the end of the day and yes. wondering, well, what if? Could I have done something better? Should I do something better in the future? Mm. And I love mm. that you pointed to the fact that it's actually not just the past 
it's not just should I have done something different. It's also about the future, like imagining these different paths and knowing, of course, our paths take meandering directions, right? It's not like we walk a straight line through life, but we we can't do everything. Yes. I think at the very core of this conversation is a conversation about grief and how do we grieve, right? It's not just stating there are unlived lives. It's grieving unlived lives. Like you talked about, whenever we're in transition, whenever we're saying yes to an enormous life path, like getting married or becoming a parent or not becoming a parent, we are saying yes to one thing and no to something else. So this is where it has often come up in my work is around relationships and relationship anxiety and what it is to say yes to one person means saying no to every other possibility. And saying no to every other possibility also means saying no to lots of other different lifestyles, places that you might have ended up living. Um, Of course, the anxious slash fantasy mind tends to project those unlived lives as being fabulous, Mm -hmm. right? We don't tend to go down the road of, oh, phew, I didn't pick the partner where, you know, X, Y, and Z happened and it ended in divorce and we had no money, right? We we picked the fabulous, the escape hatch fantasy version. Mm-hmm. But underneath that, there's, there is the grieving, right? the necessity of grieving that you are closing every other door, right? that when you become a parent, you are closing the door to a certain amount of freedom and independence that life can have when you are not a parent. When you decide you are done having children and you have two children, you're closing the door on the third child or the fourth child. Those are unlived lives. Those are quite literally unborn lives. Right. That's a whole grieving process for a lot of people. Usually women is who I get. A lot of women grieve that door that closes when you decide, I think we're done having children. So it leads also to a conversation around what what is the consequence of not grieving? What Mm -hmm. happens when you don't grieve the unlived lives, the unborn possibilities. Then we see a lot more anxiety. We see maybe even having multiple children when there was something inside of you saying, I think we're done at two or three or whatever it is because you're unwilling to grieve, right? And the effect that that might have on lives. You see, um, sort of the stereotypical midlife guy in midlife crisis who's 45 and leaves his wife and kids for a 25-year-old and buys a sports car. It's, It's a stereotype, but it happens. Why? Because there's an unwillingness to grieve that that stage of life is over. 
that kind of youthfulness and freedom is over. You are actually no longer 25. And so it's of utmost importance that we do allow ourselves to grieve lives that will we will no longer be living, lives we chose not to live, situations that we found ourselves in by circumstance. Right? So like the example that you and I talked about yesterday that I've shared is that I've had many moments in my life of grieving that I don't have a sister. Well, that's an unlived life, not by choice. I didn't do anything, but by circumstance. And I, I let that in. I, I move toward those moments of pain or longing while also holding the gratitude, how lucky I am that I have such close female friends who are like sisters. Or, you know, the one that was maybe more in our control that I don't have a daughter. I will never know what it is to have a daughter. If I hadn't let myself grieve that, maybe we would have kept trying. And that really wouldn't have been in the service of our family life. We, we knew we were at capacity with two children. And so there's a consequence that could have been a consequence of not grieving. I won't have a daughter this time around. I have two gorgeous, incredible sons. I am so blessed. Right? It's like holding, again, holding in the hands. And the one hand is my grief and the other hand is my gratitude. And letting that grief in way back when, it doesn't come up so much anymore, but way back then, letting myself fully grieve that allowed us to embrace the life that we have and close that door. And I think that's what grieving unlived lives can do. It allows us to be more present for the life that we do have. attached to but when I really sink down I think the unlived life that I grieve is just one in which I by a combination of factors just didn't have so much anxiety for my entire childhood and adolescence Mm. I just grieve like who could I have been what kind of experiences might I have had if I had not been so utterly consumed by worry from the time I was like three or four until, (laughs) I don't know, (laughs) now, no. Um, I've obviously learned things over the years, but man, I was a really (laughs) worried, deeply worried kid Mm. and adolescent Mm. and I grieve 
that I wasn't exploring and feeling carefree and and I know so many children for so many different reasons do not have I don't think there is a I don't think it's common for people to have quote unquote completely carefree childhoods Mm -hmm. Um, but I do think I had a huge weight of anxiety on me and I think it's it's often just what would I have experienced and and like you said how would I be now would I have an easier time moving into new phases of life feeling like I had really you know sucked all the juice out of the previous mm-hmm. phases of life and I think that can be a stumbling block like how do I move yes. on when I and I know you and I have talked about this before, but I think that can be a stumbling block for people. How do I, should I accept, should I grieve or should I try to live it now? You know, who's to say age is just a number. Why shouldn't I <laughs> act like a teenager when I'm 55? You know, I think there's a voice in the head that says that sometimes. But I think it's extracting what you're longing for and expressing that in a way that makes sense now. So you're longing for that carefree, uninhibited time. And it's being attached to if I was if I had been less worried and anxious, I would have done this and gone to sleepaway camp and done the, the theater or whatever it was mm-hmm. at that time. But I think this is where the conversation is so important because in exploring the past, you can then extract, similar to the escape hatch fantasies, longings, you can extract what, what is it that I am still currently longing for and how can I responsibly, in a way that makes sense, in alignment with my life now, explore that and express it. Yes. So that I don't get to the end of my life still carrying this, these unlived lives, which I think is much less about, I mean, sometimes it's about literal experiences, but sometimes it's also about an, an energy, um, yeah. right? Uh, a sense of freedom, yeah, right? A sense of if I wasn't hampered down by anxiety, what would I be doing? differently. Right. And maybe that would mean I'd be traveling the world, but maybe it would mean I would go and take that hip hop dance class mm-hmm. on Tuesday night. Right. Or I would sign up for local theater. Right. So I think anxious mind also thinks in very black and white terms like, well, if I didn't get to experience it then, or if I didn't choose that path, well, then it's just over. It's all done. But I think keeping that question of, well, what what would I be doing differently? And this is where some of those passages that I shared from Francis Weller with you, Victoria, and I think I would like to read some of them here because I think he expresses this piece so beautifully and powerfully around unlived lives. And this is from his book, The Wild Edge of Sorrow, which is all about grief. 
The process of looking at our life and pruning the dead wood is essential. Coming to our death surrounded by untouched dreams and unlived life is perhaps the deepest grief we can encounter. I have sat with many people in their later years who possessed profound remorse for what they had neglected to do in their lifetime. We are here for such a short time, and the call to truly live is something to which we each must respond. My daily practice is to wake and immediately bring my attention to this thought. I am one day closer to my death, so how will I live this day? How will I greet those I meet? How will I bring soul to each moment? I do not want to waste this day. I find this practice an acute reminder to die before I die, to stay awake. I think this can be very triggering sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I just want to name that I'm very aware of that because I think people who are highly sensitive, first of all, always live with the fear of death, but not necessarily in a healthy way. And I think that's an important piece for us to explore, but also live with. I think something a passage like this can activate like the fear of missing out, the fear of yes. oh no, like a panic yes. of oh, I do not want to waste this day, right? Yes. I have to what does that mean? But how can we hear it through the lens of helping us to wake up? How can we acknowledge that it can trigger anxiety and can trigger oh my gosh, this idea of I have to make the most of every single day because I do not believe Francis Weller means that of like, I have to go make a million dollars or I have to. He literally means, he says, how will I bring soul? How will I be awake? How will I be here? That might mean you sat in your garden all day. It's not about doing something grand and glamorous. It's about living in alignment with your soul and recognizing how often anxiety, like you're saying, Victoria, for your young self, how often anxiety, fear, worry prevents us from being fully here. Yeah. And I did have, I think it was my big sister said to me once, you know, you can't go back and change that, but you can let it inform how you live now yes. and how you live in the future. And that is what I have carried with me when I've had to make decisions now about, yes. you know, back in the fall when I was texting you like, I'm scared to go to Hawaii. I don't know if I'm, I might cancel this trip, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. and I went because I kind of repeat to myself like, well, then what's the point? <laughs> right. Right. What's the point if we let anxious brain call the thought, call the shots, call the thoughts? Um, <laughs> That's good, though. <laughs> <laughs> then 
our lives get very small because anxious yeah. brain is only concerned with one thing, and that is safety and living in our bubble and our comfort zone. Speaking of kind of like slips of the tongue, do you mind if I <laughs> share what kind of came out of me when I, when I was typing a note oh, on my phone? Yes. I was trying to type on unlived lives and my phone auto-corrected it to unloved lives and it just tapped into something for me that I shared with you Cheryl so this idea of like unloved lives I was thinking when we are kind of really stuck on certain unlived lives in a way where it's kind of more of that escape hatch fantasy Mm -hmm. type and it's getting in the way of being here and now and being in reality, I was wondering, like, do we love our life right now when we are stuck in the unlived lives? Mm. Does that mean we are leaving our current or real life unloved? And I don't mean loving it as in like, oh, this life is so shiny and perfect and everything I ever wanted, so I love it. Or, you know, not love it like I love these new shoes, but Mm. love it like stay with it no matter what. You know, move with it. Let ourselves be in it and feel it all the way. Let ourselves admit how much we never want to let go of our life never want to let go of the people, this earth, these memories? Do we spend time grieving some of these unlived lives as an attempt to distance from or distract from what it would mean to really love this life and really live this life knowing that it will end? Anxiety comes for what we care about most. We care about our lives We care about waking up another day to be in this world with the people we love and the animals we love and the flowers we love and the cloud shapes we love and the music we love and the way our bodies move that we love and the feeling of being held and laughing and crying and saying, I got you, I got you. We care about this. We want it and we want to keep it. You're posing the question, could the overfocus on unlived lives be like an intrusive thought that protects us from sinking into the goodness of how much we love this life? Yeah, because it hurts to like really love this life. It's good, but it also hurts because it comes with The possibility of loss. And just all the, you know, like when you love people, you know, and the people around you suffer and you love them so much and you don't want them to suffer or you have longings for things that you can't ever quite get or there are ruptures in relationships that hurt 
you know, or Mm -hmm. you love this earth and you're looking at climate change happening and your heart aches because you love it so much. Mm. Like love, I'm not saying love hurts like, you know, in an abusive way. I just mean that it, it, it hurts to love. It is also painful to love so much. And, and I, I also, after I wrote that and sent it to you, I was thinking about like, well, what, and also what about the people who really don't love their life right now? Um, or who are really suffering with depression in a way where they're not waking up, like, I'm so mm. glad I woke up another day. Yeah. Um, and how it might also be really tempting to focus on unlived lives when you're in a lot of pain in your current life. Mm. Yeah. If you're having trouble touching into love for life, you know, and 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 wanting it. There's also mm. people who are in that place, you know? Mm. Yes. I think it's so important what you're sharing, Victoria, this piece about how much it hurts to love, how scary it is to love, that love and fear are intertwined, that when we let ourselves love fully, that we are opening ourselves to the awareness more closely to the awareness, the possibility, the risk of loss. And I wonder if one of the very core pieces of unlived life, someone who's at the end of their life, I don't really think the grief is about, oh, I never went to Paris. Like Maybe that's a piece of it. But I think it's more about how did I not let myself love fully? My relationships, my love of the earth, my love of the things that I love to do, right? How, how did I let, how much did I let fear run the show? Is maybe one of the simmered down pieces of this conversation. And so in relationships, right, how, it's like if we knew we only had a week left and with this person and we've kept ourselves barricaded behind all the ways, the ways that people do with defenses, with intrusive thoughts, with relationship anxiety, however the protections show up. And we let ourselves in that one week to be, we let ourselves be unfettered. We let ourselves be uninhibited. We let ourselves love fully. I'm thinking about the character in Kate Kerrigan's book, Recipes for a Perfect Marriage, one of my favorites. And she spends her whole entire marriage with this wonderful such a good, good, good man pining for what she had thought was the love of her life, some infatuation. Turns out to be a despicable piece of garbage. Um, But she doesn't learn that until decades later. They had had a very brief romance and she had held on 
to that and never let herself fully be in her marriage to this man who was so steady, solid, good, loving. And as he's dying, he says, tell me you love me. Say, I love you. She had never said, I love you. And it was only as he, like, I don't remember exactly, but as he's leaving his body, as he's dying, that she says, I love you. And then she can't stop saying it. I love you. 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 And she realizes that he had asked her to say that not for himself, but for her. And I also know how hard that is, right? So it's like we want to have compassion for ourselves, for how tender the heart is, and that, of course, we keep it protected, and of course we have walls. And we can take steps towards softening those walls, and we can also have compassion for the ways that fear tries to protect us and and does protect us. Yeah. But, you know, I think about Everest again and the story that I have shared about him being a highly sensitive kid, um, having a very loud fear of death from an early age, like so many highly sensitive people, and sitting in the cockpit at age 13 for his first glider flight, scared. But his love of flying was bigger. And so he took that lesson, and he trained all summer, And then when he was 14, sat alone, getting ready to solo, scared. It's not that fear wasn't there. Scared. And he shares, he articulates that that was the moment that he made his love of flying and his love of living bigger than his fear of dying. And that he didn't want to be here on this planet if he wasn't fully living. Recognizing that it means looking death in the face every time he flies. That's how it feels. Not so much anymore when he flies, but for a while. And that this path that he's going on that is risky, right? Training, hopefully, his hope one day to be a naval aviator, to be an astronaut that he knows that there's, of course, immense risk in those paths. But he he wants to fully live. And it's also when people ask me, how could you let your son fly as a 14-year-old, as a 15-year-old? 
and my responses, but to not let him fly would have, his soul would have withered. Right? So there's, there's the piece about keeping death in front of our face and making the choice to say, okay, there's death and here's life. And do we want to live a life half-lived because we're afraid of death? And that's a more literal example, but we're also talking about these examples of the heart, how we hold back. And again, all in, all under the, the big blanket of compassion for when we do let fear make the choices. Mm. We're recording this right at the beginning of spring mm. in the Northern Hemisphere. And I'm thinking about, you know, anytime you plant a garden, anytime you sprinkle seeds, you don't really know which ones are going to come up and which ones aren't. Hmm. I mean, you hope that they all do, but sometimes it doesn't go the way you think. Like you, mm. you know, you plant the seeds, you see what actually grows, you see what comes back next year and what doesn't. And I'm just thinking about the mysterious aspect to all of it. Like there is, there are choices that we have and then there's so much mystery. And we actually do live a lot of lives throughout our lifetime, you know, because mm -hmm. even if we have a set plan, stuff happens. <laughs> yes. And I don't know. I'm just, I'm just thinking about that mystery part that yes, we have, like, it's so important what you're saying about the choices we have around living for what we value and what we love as opposed to just reacting to fear and avoiding out of fear. And we have those choices. And then there's the mystery of like, what planted that love of aviation in Everest's heart? I, who knows, mm -hmm. you know? Right. So I don't know. I'm just thinking about that, the mysterious piece and the piece of like, sometimes it's somewhat comforting for me to be like, and it's all not, it's not all up to me. Mm -hmm. I don't have control over all of it. And it's, it's trying to have control, thinking there's a perfect right way, thinking I should be able to figure that out, thinking I should be able to do it all and have it all somehow. Mm. That's the torturous part. Mm. Yes. I'm glad you're saying that piece because I don't want people listening. I don't want this to activate that part of the anxious brain that thinks I'm doing it wrong. I'm going to get to the end of my life and be full of regret um, because I didn't make that choice or go on that trip or take that job. There's something about grieving the imperfection of life itself. like. Like what you're saying, that there's only so much we can do. There's, there are all of these mysterious elements. And highly sensitive people, we have this innate knowledge that perfection exists somewhere in some other realm, in the spiritual realm maybe. And that maybe grieving unlived lives is 
some way to grasp at this longing for perfection or for wholeness. It's, it's a, but it's a misguided belief that there's something in our life that's missing when in fact the nature of being human is such that there's always going to be something missing. So the mind thinks maybe I wouldn't be feeling sad, empty, or lonely if I had made this or that choice or was with this or that person or had this or that friend. When the fact is that this imperfection, this hole in the circle, this sense of separation is inescapable. And that when we name that and give it a little love, we we make a space for that hole, for the imperfection. We will never be able to live every life. We will never be able to do everything. We will never be able to maybe even love fully. Right? Maybe that's not the plan. Maybe we're, we're not designed to do it that way. But when we make space for that and name that, then we move closer to what, to what we might call wholeness. Right? That that's part of the whole experience is the imperfection. That's the paradox. So I think that there's this very important spoke on the wheel of grieving unlived lives, like the examples of grieving, deciding not to have children, or grieving we're stopping at two, or grieving that stage of life is over, right? That's where the piece around transitions is so important is that I talk so much about is the grieving stage of transitions that we tend to bypass in the culture. Right? That, you know, when you enter the next stage, it means letting go of a whole stage of life. Right? And that when we allow ourselves to grieve that, we can be more present for this stage. I think that's a very important piece of grieving unlived lives. But then I think that there's an element of it, of what we might be calling grieving on live lies, which is actually the highly sensitive, anxious brain trying to look for an escape hatch, but also think that there's some perfect way to do this. Yeah. Yeah. When there's not. I think that's really important. I think that perfectionism piece and the the desire for certainty, like the desire for wholeness and the desire for certainty mm-hmm. is really strong for some of us. It doesn't bother other people so much. <laughs> really? Who? <laughs> so someone messaged us on Patreon, a member of, our, of that community, and she asked us, how, mm. how do you grieve unlived yes. lives in a healthy way? And I know that this is far too vast and deep to be like, oh, three steps. Here you go. Easy peasy. But mm. I think it is important because I, you know, I brought this up with a friend recently. I was like, Cheryl and I are going to record an episode about grieving unlived lives. I'm curious, what does that mean to you when you hear that? Mm-hmm. And she said, you know, I think I have a general sense of grief around 
some things kind of similar to me, a little different, but but she said, I I don't really go there too often because I think it would be unhealthy for me to spend too much time thinking about everything that could have been. <laughs> and so I'm just curious about what this looks like. As this person asked, what does it look like to grieve unlived lives in a healthy way? And what's mm. And is there a difference between someone who is really... It feels really present to them already. Like they're they're thinking about this a lot. Like mm-hmm. they're constantly thinking, oh, what if this or this? And someone who's like, I don't think I need to poke that bear. <laughs> or you know what I mean? <laughs> is this something for everyone or is it something you do as as needed, I guess? Well, I do think it's something for everyone because I think – that there's an accumulation of grief that happens in a lifetime mm-hmm. and that eventually um, it will catch up to us. And for some people that's, and it's usually around a transition. For some people it's around the wedding. For some people, for a lot of people it's at midlife. For some people it's at retirement. That there's a life review that happens and that the accumulated grief is part of that process and a really important part of that process so that we can move into the next big stage of life, like second half of life, without the weight of that accumulated grief. And the grief is not only about unlived lives. It's all kinds of grief. I don't think most people know how to grieve. I think we're born knowing how to grieve, but I think it gets shut down really early. And then even if it doesn't get shut down, the vastness of what highly sensitive hearts feel is almost beyond what even a very loving, emotionally attuned family can guide and contain. Mm -hmm. That this is why I love Pema Trojan so much, and I know you do too, Victoria, is that she names and recognizes this place in the heart that is so vast and so tender, so tender, that of course we can't be with it fully. And so I think the first place of grieving is validating. If you're having a hard time grieving, well, that makes sense. Certainly if you were raised in a family that shut down emotions, that makes sense. We live in a culture that shames and judges grieving, tears, crying. So that makes sense. But even if all of that was protected, there's still the place in the heart that I think has to learn over time how to meet the largeness of life on this earth. So this is from the preface to Pema Chodron's book, Comfortable with Uncertainty. And the editor writes, Although absolute bodhicitta is our natural state, 
We are intimidated by its unconditional presence. Our heart feels so vulnerable and tender that we fabricate walls to protect it. It takes determined inner work to even see the walls and a gentle approach to dismantling them. We don't have to tear them all down at once or go at them with a sledgehammer, as Pema puts it. Learning to rest in open-hearted basic goodness is a lifelong process. Relative bodhicitta is the courage and compassion to investigate our tender heart, to stay with it as much as we can and gradually expand it. The key point of cultivation of cultivating relative bodhicitta is to keep opening our hearts to suffering without shutting down, to train in making our hearts this big takes bravery and kindness. Keeping our hearts opening, keeping them opening to suffering without shutting down takes bravery and kindness. It's a lifelong process. And I would say this is exponentially more true for highly sensitive people with highly sensitive hearts that are feeling into every moment of loss, change, death from such an early age. So how do you grieve? Well, First, it's working through our beliefs about grief. So we want to work on the, on the cognitive level. What beliefs do we carry about grief? Where did we learn those beliefs? Do we still believe that? Um, I think coming into our bodies, doing the somatic work, things like yoga and dance and walking and rock climbing, anything that helps us to inhabit our bodies, helps to open up those channels for grief. Francis Weller's work is all about community grief rituals, that there is a, an element of grief that can only be grieved in community, that requires the community, that that is how we feel safe enough to wail and keen. Right? These words that we don't even use, sob, I was in a profound grief cycle a few months ago about Everest leaving, going to college. And I had such longing for, I kept envisioning it as, as a grief, a grief womb, not a grief room, but a grief womb mm. where, where women would come to grieve together, like the red tent for the menstrual cycle, but this was for the grieving cycle. And I think maybe we've had this in other times 
in other ways where we can lean into each other, lean on each other, and wail for these, all the losses in our life. So we do a lot of invalidating of grief in our culture, like unless you've actually lost somebody to death, then all other grief is insignificant or unimportant or you should be over it quickly. We minimize grief a lot. We minimize like losing a pet. You know, we don't validate what a profound loss it is to lose an animal. So a big part of grief work is rewiring the shame stories, the beliefs that we've all absorbed in our highly grief-phobic culture. Coming into the body, starting to notice those smaller moments of grief, like at the end of a day, at the end of a season, the beginning of a season, those, those moments that we've talked about on the podcast. Establishing a practice like Tonglen that Pema Chodron teaches, breathing into the pain, breathing out the opposite, spaciousness, goodness, pleasure. Right? That's, that's the on-the-spot rewiring. Right? Allowing ourselves to move toward it. Teaching our bodies and our hearts that we can handle pain So many people carry a belief around pain that if they start to cry, they'll never stop. It'll be too vast. It'll be too big. They will get swallowed up. And I think some of that comes from early life, not having arms around you when you cried. And I think some of it comes from the failure in the culture to not have a hundred arms around you when you cry. Mm. It was never meant to be just two arms or four arms. But I do know that people thaw, you know, when when there's a frozen channel and they're around grief, around their somatic experience, it is very possible to thaw that channel, to open. Being with a great therapist, of course, goes without saying, but important to say being held and mirrored in that sacred space of therapy, what can be sacred when it's with the right person, you know, feeling safe enough. Grieving is so vulnerable. Yeah. So vulnerable. There's an out-of-control feeling about it. You know, people sometimes worry about the way they look or their face. Like, it's it's not a pretty thing that we do so we can worry about those things that's all very helpful and I'm just thinking because it is something that can be new and kind of uncharted and scary for people I'm wondering if there's anything about containment that you find helpful when we talk about grief like I think that sometimes people just picture like 
So am I just supposed to be like swimming in a sea of grief all the time? Um, Hmm. Because there is so much to grieve. Like, I'm just wondering about containment. Mm, Yeah. Um, Well, this is where the muscle of the inner parent comes in, that we, we can decide times when we're going to grieve. Um, we can say, I'm going to allow myself to grieve for 20 minutes and then I'm going to get up and go for a walk. We can put some parameters on it. And I think it's sometimes a very healthy thing to do. I think it's also an important differentiation, which I've made before, between productive healing tears, healing grieving, and more of the wallowing type, where it's coming from more of a poor me and more of that, like, my life will never get better. And it's not true grieving. It's tears, but it's not healing medicinal grief. And I also want to say, as I do write about, when I write about grief, I do share this piece. Grieving isn't only crying. We can grieve through movement, through dance. We can just feel a moment of grief and put a hand on our heart and breathe into it. Oh, there's there's that sadness. There's that sad feeling in my heart doesn't mean I'm going to start crying. Just noticing, oh, sad feeling, bringing my loving hand to my heart, breathing into it. Grief can be processed through writing a poem, through any kind of writing, through drawing. Those are beautiful ways to process grief. Crying is just one way. So yes, we can put containers and parameters around it. We can also find other ways. We can listen first and foremost, listen to our our body. How does this grief want to be expressed? What wants to come forth? And then we find often that it's not as scary as we think that there's something very alive and beautiful in the grieving. And in fact, maybe some of grieving unlived lives is grieving the grief that we didn't grieve. (laughs) Like grieving because the grief is such a portal to our joy and our aliveness and our fullness. And if we're spending our lives completely walled off from that, tamping it down, exerting energy, to not grieve, that's also going to be a grief of an unlived life. There is a, there is a life of grief. Right? Grief is its own animal. And I think it's one of the most important lives of all to live out. And so we might feel grief for the times when we couldn't grieve, we didn't know how to grieve. But then again, letting that inform, okay, how do I want to move forward from here? Mm. No simple task, but worth <laughs> <No>. doing. <laughs> none of it is. None of it is. And none of it's broad sweep. It's, it's moment by moment. It's like Pema Chodron says, it's a lifelong process. 
right? To train in making our hearts this big takes bravery and kindness. Mm. To open to the suffering without shutting down takes bravery and kindness. And also I would add and, and tools and practices and support and community and maybe maturity, time, all of those things. Yeah. Yeah, there's a certain strength in saying, this is my life. Like, mm-hmm. there's a great, very short poem by Jane Hirschfield. I wonder if I can read it because it's so short. Should I try, Cheryl? Yes. Okay. This is us living on the edge, living yep. those unlived lives, <laughs> seize the day. Okay. This is called A Cottony Fate by Jane Hirschfield. Long ago, someone told me, avoid or it troubles the mind as a held out piece of meat disturbs a dog. Now I too am 60. There was no other life. Mm. Mm. Yeah. That comes to me a lot. <laughs> oh. There was no other life. Can you read it one more time? Because I yeah. heard my mind got stuck on or and I heard yeah. O-A-R, O-A-R and then I heard O-R-E. There's so many ors. <laughs> I know. It's O-R. Okay. One more time, okay. please. Long ago, someone told me, avoid or it troubles the mind as a held out piece of meat disturbs a dog. Now... I, too, am 60. There was no other life. Mm. So good. There is a certain, like, strength of, like, that crone energy, you know? Yes. Archetypally of, like, yes. there was no other life. This is my life, and I own it. Yes. It's the differentiation between these two types of ungrieve, un- unlived lives that we are highlighting, Right. It's like getting stuck in the escape hatch fan regret version and then the healthy grieving of the roads not taken or the circumstances given so that you can keep moving forward. I think yeah. it's – that's I think maybe the most important piece to name, that those are separate. They both can feel like unlived life, but they're very different. Yeah. And one requires what the poem is saying. There, w- there's no or. Like that, that is not helpful. There was no other life. Yeah, it's both and. It's like the tender heart of the child, like longing for what the child is longing for, and the wisdom of years of like I own this life, mm. and and holding both. At the same time, somehow, paradoxically, yes. you know? Yes. Mm. Yes. Mm. Thank you, Cheryl. This was this was a tough one. Yeah. It is, because I think it's a tough 
multi-layered topic. But I hope whoever is listening can extract your nuggets of gold from it. Thank you, Victoria. Thank you, Cheryl.